Well, we're continuing in a series that we're calling For Everyone. And in this series, we're taking a look at the book of Romans. And Romans is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a bunch of people in the city of Rome. And so what happened was, is that he wrote this letter to a church in Rome that he had not yet visited, to a bunch of people that he really didn't know most of them. And so he writes this letter as an introduction of who he is and the message that he brings. And he wrote this letter as a strategic thing. Paul went on different missions journeys, missionary journeys, to bring the gospel, to bring the good news to different places. And he wanted to go to Spain. And he saw Rome as a strategic location for resources, a strategic location to stop at on his way to Spain. And he wanted to introduce himself, but more importantly, he wanted to introduce what news he was spreading around. And that is the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus. And what we learn in Romans is probably the fullest and deepest explanation of the gospel that Paul writes. And one of the things that we learn is that the gospel is for everyone. This good news is for everyone. And I couldn't help but notice in our graphic that says for everyone, if you look at the E at the end of everyone, there's two Patriots fans in there. How in the world did we get two Patriots fans in the It's as if we're saying the gospel is for everyone, including Patriots fans. <laughs> what I noticed, though, is that there's no Giants fans in there, so I was a little concerned. Well, we're continuing our study of Romans, and I want to review a little bit about what we've learned to this point. And so Charles gave us an outline, and what we're doing is we're looking at the first half of Romans, we're looking at the first eight chapters, and he broke it up into three parts. And the first part that we looked at when we looked at Romans was that Paul presents the problem. And the problem is this, that all have sinned, you, me, we all have sinned and fallen short. And we are separated from God. And there is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do. There's no amount of effort I can do on my own part to fix this problem. And so the second part of Romans, and the second part of Romans uh, first eight chapters is that Paul tells us that God provides the solution. That God provides the solution to our problem in sending his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin. And that God goes and takes our performance-based plan and exchanges it for a grace-based plan. That we enter into the story trying to have a plan for our actions and our performances to fix our problem. And God's like, that's not going to work. Instead, I'm going to give you a grace-based plan. And what we then see as we go on is that there are results to this solution. There are results to what God's plan was. And so we're going to continue looking at those results today, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 6. And if you've never used a Bible before and you're like, where is Romans? Just look at the beginning of the Bible. There's a table of contents that will tell you how to get to the book of Romans. There's other ways you can follow along, though, if you don't want to kind of read out of a paper copy. Take out your phone or your tablet and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. Or if you're on Calvary Church's app, we actually have a spot where you can read the Bible right through our app as well. Well, we're going to be reading for Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So up until this point, Paul is presenting just kind of truth. He's presenting facts. He goes over and he says, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the results. And he's just kind of presenting these things, he's writing these things in the letter and all that. And then we get to this verse, and all of a sudden he gets a little bit feisty. He gets a little bit argumentative. He begins to argue against assumed conclusions that he feels that the readers of this letter are having. He goes and he rebuts an assumed argument. And the assumed argument is this, that the conclusions to grace would be that since God has supplied grace and covered my sins that I've committed, my sins going forward, why not just live it up? Why not just do whatever it is that I want to do? Why not just kind of continue sinning so that God's grace can continue in an even more substantial way? And Paul says, this is not okay. This is not an accurate conclusion. And what we realize when Paul makes this assumption that he has to actually go and rebut this argument, it tells us a little bit about what we learned a few weeks ago in in regards to justification. Justification is a church word, and if you didn't listen to Charles talk about it a few weeks ago, you want to go online and uh, re-watch what he talked about when we talked about justification. But we are justified through faith in Jesus. And when that occurs, we are declared good. We are not made good, and that's what Paul is, is, is understanding as he makes a rebuttal against this assumed argument. We are not made good, we are declared good. And so through justification, the penalty of sin is removed, but it is through sanctification that the power of sin is addressed. And sanctification is another church word. It's kind of one of those words that we throw out there, and maybe we understand, maybe we don't. So really, what we need to understand is that sanctification is simply a process by which God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, continues to transform us and make us holy. And this is a lifelong process. This does not get completed until we are face-to-face with God, whether through death or Jesus coming back. And so... As this is a process, sanctification occurs throughout our life. And so Paul refutes this argument, and he refutes this argument that it is okay to just continue sinning. And what he's doing, he's not talking about the works of sanctification. He's not talking about acknowledging the fact that we are still capable of sinning, that we are actually pretty proficient at it. In fact, I continue to sin. I'm screwed up. And we all know that Charles is definitely screwed up. And he's, But he's not talking about that. He's talking about a deliberate choice to sin counting on some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, counting on some sort of claiming of grace without living out grace. And so Paul refutes an assumed argument. And the way he refutes this argument is by pointing to a deliberate picture. He points to a deliberate picture, and that picture is a picture of baptism. And I find it really interesting, and I want to kind of go off on a tangent for a little on a side note, I find it interesting that Paul makes another assumption. Paul assumes that the readers of his letter are baptized. 
Paul assumes that if you are a believer and following Jesus, that you are baptized. And you see, that's what occurred oftentimes in the early church. At the point of conversion, at the point of choosing to follow Jesus, baptism almost always occurred immediately afterwards. It wasn't until a couple hundred years later that we begin to read church documents where people were asked to wait so that they could determine whether they understood what baptism was or baptism wasn't. You see, for Paul, baptism was not an optional extra that we assigned to our faith. It was a given. But it isn't a prerequisite to our faith. We got to make sure that we're not confusing it here. While Paul thought it was a given, it's not like it was a requirement in order to gain our faith, in order to gain our salvation. Baptism doesn't do that. Baptism is just an expression of our faith. And while it is a given, it isn't a prerequisite. Grace is grace. If baptism was what we had to do to, in order to gain grace, then grace would no longer be grace. We would now have a requirement to seal that transaction. What baptism is, it's a declaration of our identity. It is a declaration of our identity. It is a powerful symbol of our faith relationship with Jesus. And so as I enter into the water, I am uh, declaring this picture of me entering into Jesus. And as the water covers me, I am I'm showing this picture of being buried with him. And as I am removed from that covering, whether it's immersion or sprinkling or pouring or, or whatever, I am powerfully portraying the understanding of being raised with Christ. And now I walk now in a radical declaration of new life. And this is the picture that Paul is outlining, that he is painting as a rebuttal to this assumed argument. And he uses this picture to make a point. And not only does he use this picture to make the point, he uses it as a springboard going forward. There's a scholar named N.T. <coughs> There's a scholar named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a scholar of the Bible. He's a scholar of Paul. And he looks at Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. And he makes an interesting uh, comparison to these three chapters and the book of Exodus. Especially in regards to baptism. And so Wright looks at the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, where God hears the cries of his people, where God hears the cries of his people who were in slavery, and he sends a deliverer, and, and those people go through the waters of the Red Sea, leaving their life of slavery, entering into a new life, where they are now given the law and await when God will bring them to their inheritance. Wright looks at chapters 6, 7, and 8, and he shows how Paul brings the Christians through the waters of baptism, leaving the life of slavery to sin into this new life, and he goes into chapter 7 where we go into the fulfillment of the law, which then brings us to chapter 8 where God brings his people to his inheritance. It's a fascinating study. It's a very uh, profound study. But whether you agree with Wright or not, there are implications to what is happening when we look at this picture of going from an old life to a new life. And as N.T. Wright looks at Paul, he realizes that Paul looks at baptism as a practical and physical declaration of the beginning of the Christian life. Again, it is not a requirement for the Christian life. It is not a prerequisite for the Christian life. It is a bold declaration of the new identity. 
And so he links this picture of baptism to the Christian dying and rising with the Messiah. And as Wright observes Paul, he writes this. He writes this about Paul. His answer is that in becoming a Christian, you move from one type of humanity to the other. And you should never think of yourself in the original mode again. You move from one type of humanity to the other. And you should never think of yourself in the original mode again. And so Paul enters into this passage rebutting an assumed argument. And the assumed argument is this. We all now have get-out-of-jail-free cards. And so we could do whatever it is that we want. Let's live it up because wouldn't that just give grace the opportunity to be shown even more? Let us just sin and do whatever we feel like because that gives grace the opportunity to be extended over and over again. And Paul says, no, this is wrong. And he paints this deliberate picture of baptism to illustrate the ending of one life and the beginning of a new life. He then provides this deliberate picture to illustrate the ending of life with slavery to sin and the beginning of a new life in union with Christ. And what he begins to do is that he begins to point out that this new life brings about a change of status. There's a change of status. There's a status change that occurs when new life is given. And it's here where Paul's argument is driven home. We are no longer located in sin. Grace met us there. While we were in sin, grace met us where we were, and grace did not come in order to tell us that we were fine where we were. But instead, it came to take us from where we were in sin and bring us to a new place, into a new life. And we are to live that new life with the status change that it brings. I remember the day that I married Jen. And I remember it very vividly. I remember a lot of small details. I remember the face, the way her face looked as she walked through the door and I saw her for the first time. I remember how her hair looked. I remember the sound of her voice as she exchanged vows with me. I even remember the ugly blue carpet of the church. And I remember the moment that it kind of just became real that we were married. It wasn't when we exchanged vows. It wasn't even when we said I do. It wasn't even when I kissed the bride. It wasn't even in the church. It was as we walked out of the church and as we walked into the limo, as we piled into the limo and we began to drive away just the two of us. We were in our own little world. The sounds of the people celebrating, the sounds of our friends and family were fading away. And it was just the two of us. And I kissed Jen for the second time that day. And what I realized was, I just kissed my wife. I'm married. And the rest of the day was wonderful. We went and we had a wonderful reception and and there were toasts and there was good food and it was great celebration. And at the end of the day, at the end of the, the night, we walked out of the reception together and I looked at her and I said, well, this was great. We should do it again sometime. <laughs> I gave her a little kiss and said goodnight and I said, well, I'll call you in the morning. And then I got into my parents' car and we drove home. That didn't happen. (laughs) Come on. 
That didn't happen. I mean, the first part happened. That last part obviously didn't happen. Why? Because I was married. Because she was my wife. Because everything changed that day. The purpose of the wedding isn't to have a wedding. The purpose of the wedding is to begin a marriage. You can't show up to the wedding and not show up to the marriage. You can't show up to the wedding and not show up to the marriage. And yet I believe that at times we treat Christianity that way. We point to the wedding. We point to the day it all began. But we don't live out the marriage. We claim the hope of the wedding, but we never really entered into the marriage. We never really entered into the status change. We never actually lived out that new life. And Paul says that this is not okay. We cannot simply point to the day that it all began and live out the rest of our life as if it didn't matter. Our status has changed. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, again, he says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are to live a new life. There is a dramatic shift that we cannot miss. There is a change of status that occurs when we choose to follow Jesus. The story of grace does not end with the removal of a penalty. The story of grace does not end with the removal of consequence. The story of grace continues and pushes us forward into new life. Does this mean that I no longer sin? No, of course I continue to sin because it is a lifelong work. Sanctification is a lifelong work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it is not complete until we face God face to face. So yes, I will sin, but I live out my life with this new identity. I live out my life with this new status change. And my identity is rooted and grounded in that new status. But we can't separate it from grace. We cannot separate it from grace. You see, you can't look at these verses without looking at also the beginning of what we read in Romans. It's one letter. And oftentimes what we do is when we look at these verses of, of, of no longer sinning, <clears throat> there's a tendency to bring legalism into the game, and we cannot do that. Grace provided our, our new life, and it is what sustains our new life. Grace is both the foundation of our new life, and it is the fuel for our new life. And this is what it means to be a Christian, to live in the reality of what our baptism portrays. To live in that reality, to wake up each day not looking at ourselves, but looking at God and saying that it is only because of your son, it is only because of your son that I can come to you. It is only because of your son that I belong to you. It is only because of your son that my hope is based on your promises. It is because of your son, my hope is based solely on his death and resurrection. It is only because of him that I am home with you. 
It is the same power you used to raise your son from the dead that you used to transform me and to sustain this new life that you've given me. And so with grateful hearts, we point our eyes towards God, not towards ourselves, and we cry out, thank you, thank you. In a moment, the band is going to come out again and we're going to sing another song. And that's going to happen here in Sowerton and it's going to happen in Quakertown as well. And I invite you to do something. I invite you to turn your eyes to the source of hope, the source of love, the source of new life, the source of your status change. I invite you to turn your eyes to Jesus because oftentimes we look at ourselves And when we're looking at ourselves, we either do one of two things. We look at our failures and we become despondent or we look at our successes and then we look at others and we become arrogant. We need to stop looking at ourselves and look to the one who brought about that status change. I invite you to look to Jesus. And you know what? For some of you in this room, perhaps you haven't chosen to follow Jesus. Perhaps you've never made that decision. Maybe today's that you, you make that decision. Maybe God's working in your heart because here's the deal that you need to understand. You, myself, all of us in this room have a problem. The problem is that all of us has fallen short. All of us have sinned. And there is nothing that I can do. There's nothing you can do to fix that problem. There is nothing. We can stop trying because it's not going to work. But God, for God so loved, God provides the solution to that problem in his son, Jesus. And he asks us to exchange this performance-based plan for a grace-based plan and to choose Jesus, to accept the new life that Jesus offers. And so if you've never done that, maybe today is the day you make that choice. If you need to talk to myself or someone in a red Calvary t-shirt or someone at the Hub Next Steps, don't leave today. Make sure you talk to them. Maybe today is the day that you choose to accept this life that Jesus is offering you. For those of you who have already made that choice, for those of you who are already following Jesus, I invite you to take a look at baptism. I invite you to take a look at baptism. For those of you who have not been baptized yet, I want to remind you again It was a given for Paul. It was not an optional extra add-on. Again, it's not a prerequisite for our faith. It isn't. It's not something we do to be saved. It's not something we do to enter into this new life. But it is a bold declaration of our identity in Jesus, of our new status change. And so if you've never been baptized, maybe make the decision to do that today. Maybe go over to our hub next step space. Talk to them over there. Fill out a next steps card asking for information about getting baptized. Maybe you need to take out our app. And if you're online, uh, watching the service through online, maybe you need to go to our app and fill out a next steps card asking for information about being baptized. Maybe that's what you need to do. And for those of you in this room who have chosen to follow Jesus and you've already been baptized, I invite you to think about it. I invite you to remember it. I invite you to think about what it means to you. You see, baptism allowed me to proclaim my story to the world. And this is my story, that I outright rejected God. 
that I declared war on him when I sinned, that I found myself in a place where I could do nothing about it. This is my story, that God loved me so much that he decided to provide the solution in his son Jesus, that he would pay the price that I was meant to pay. This is my story, that I was able to leave the life of slavery to sin because of Jesus and be united in Christ and given a new life. This is my story. I live out the status change that that life brings. This is my story, and I lived out the assured love that God has shown me throughout my story. You see, Jesus didn't resuscitate me. He didn't give me back my life. He gave me new life. And it's time for me to live out the status change that that new life brings. Let's pray. God, we try so hard to kind of make things right on our own. As if there's something we could do to fix our problem. But there's nothing we can do. We need to rely on the solution that you promised, the solution you provided, exchanging our performance for grace. And God, we thank you today for those students in Quakertown. We thank you for them doing that. God, overflow us with a sense of the status change that we have been given, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now living a life united with Christ. Let us be overcome by the weight of your love. Let us stop looking at ourselves, but look to you as we stand secure in the assurance of that grace, in the assurance of that love. And Lord, for anyone in this room who is just wrestling with you right now, oh, deciding if this is the decision, this is the day that they will make that choice, I ask you that you would just flood them with your presence and that they will boldly accept the gift of this new life and that they will trust Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.